Hey, it's Armin, and this is episode four of Touching Grass. Uh, usual quick disclaimers. Um, the t-shirt is out. Kickstarter is still up, I think. Um, there's also the the Instagram, the Twitter, everything you want to find about the podcast is in a tree, a link tree that you can find in the bio of this episode wherever you're watching it. Um, it's been a while. It's, it's, it's been a while, it's been two months actually, <laughs> just almost like a month and a half, um, I'm sorry, that, that's, that's completely my fault, life, life got ahead of me and I, I lost track of things, so I'm back on it, I'm recording this episode, which is nice, which is good, I'm proud of myself, um, it's a really good episode as well, it is titled Biography of the Opium Poppy, it's, it's all about plants, it's all about people, it's all about drugs. It's about culture and nature, and it's at the core of the kind of things that I wanted to talk about on the podcast, so I'm really excited for this one. Um, Before we get into it, though, we have our little Q&A section. Um, You would have noticed that this began with a little guitar intro kind of thing that I recorded myself, that I came up with myself. I I talked about the fact that I wanted to do that last episode, so... Um, Rest easy that the past month didn't sum to nothing. I have little intros now. So cue the Q&A intro. Okay, Q&A time. So if you don't know how this works, um, on, on the Instagram and on the Q&A section on the streaming services that this is out on, I ask you guys to send in some questions just about life, about different like episodes that you want or just like just to talk to me so I can hear from you guys. It's a cute little section at the start of each podcast. This is the second installment of the Q&A. Um, I want a better like name for the Q&A than just Q&A. So someone come, on, come up with that and tell me. Um, before I get into this, I, I, I want to say like who asks the questions, but sometimes it's just like your Instagram handle. So if you like sign it off with a name, it will be nice to like, just like give you a shout out, like say thank you for asking, getting involved, all that. So um, the first little thing that someone sent in, it was Zachary. And he, I think, said a couple of things that you wanted to hear about in the podcast. So he wrote... Joan of Arc being a mystic, Northern Chinese folk religions and Zoroastrianism. So um, Zoroastrianism, I know a bit about because it was like the birthplace was in the south of Iran. Um, It's close to home. It's actually home because I'm Iranian. Um, I would love to do an episode on that. So I'll 100% like I will do that. Um, Northern Chinese folk religions, I know nothing about. I googled it, and apparently it's a, there's, like, different deities representing different things about life, and, like, yeah, I, I, this looks really interesting. So I will, I will I'll, I'll put that in the in the books for what I can do an episode on. Um, you mentioned Joan of Arc was actually really cool, because I, I listened to a podcast on her a couple of weeks ago. Um, for people who don't know, Joan of Arc was... Um, a, a saint i think she's like a patron saint of france um she was 
involved in a in a couple different like military conquests she she led a lot of sieges she was like a she had like a massive like she was a military leader i'm pretty sure in france um and she claimed to be under like the the guidance of god she was famous because she had like visions from she was saying that like i i think when she was 13 she um had visions of these saints coming down and telling her to like defeat the english and and put king charles to put charles to like under the like true reign because he deserved it and he was she was sent by god and all this um there's a lot that i could say about her so i could do a really good episode um just on joan of arc like it, really really fascinating stuff like she ended up being um she did all of her like influence was in her teenage years she was burnt at the stake at the age of 19 um after being like called guilty for being uh, for blasphemy i think um because she wore men's clothes and and the church said that her visions that she was having were demonic um typical church stuff back in the day so unfortunately they did declare her guilty and they burnt her at the stake um uh, yeah there's like there's so much i can say about this so i will thank you for thank you for these like the, i i do struggle with ideas for these episodes i have like a list um on a page on my phone so i have added all of these thank you thank you um next question ramona said who's your favorite mystic and why um this was interesting because I, I i i've never really considered myself to have a favorite mystic um i was thinking about it after i read the question and there was a couple things people that i thought of but there was one one person came to mind mainly um and his name was neem karoli baba um he was a hindu he was a guru he was hindu by by trade <laughs> he was famously the man who so if you have heard of someone called ramdas he, he was a, a very famous um like a like a spiritual leader like he came to he was an american he his original name was i completely forgot what his original name was he's an american dude he, he was a psychologist at harvard um he was experimenting with lsd um he gave his students lsd that got him kicked out of harvard back in the 70s so he was involved heavily in like triggering the the drug revolution of the the 70s and he went to india where he he was just going on like a spiritual journey the highs of acid he always said that like he would meet god but the problem was that he would come down from it and he wanted to learn how to live that kind of life without coming down and he found that through meditation and spirituality he, he learned a lot about hinduism he was jewish um culturally jewish so a lot of his his um wisdom came from the torah and such and he he knew a lot about christianity and, and everything he, he was just a massive like role, role model for me like i i listened to his his talks from all the way from the early 70s to like the 2016 when i think it was 2016 when he passed away um he ramdas himself played like a massive part in my life in getting me into all of this stuff so neem karoli baba was the man 
the enlightened being supposedly who his guru who taught him in India, the man who got him to realize his true self. He went from being his old um, Harvard self. He, he relinquished that, that personality. He became Ram Das. He came over to America after meeting Ninkuroli Baba, teaching all of the teachings that were passed down to him. Um, I'd say he's my favorite mystic. I want a poster of him in my room just so I can like look at him and get a bit of perspective on my life every now and then. Um, but yeah, that's 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 probably my favorite mystic. Thank you, Ruben. Um, Daniel said, Poppy War by R.F. Quang explores the relationship between opium and shamanism. What's my take on this? Um, I don't really have a take on this. I haven't read the book. I, I, I looked up the synopsis on Wikipedia. It looked really interesting. Like uh, It had really good reviews. It follows um, the main character in, in there was like a political situation um, it was. It, I, I'm not going to butcher what this book is about. I I remember reading a, a bit about it ages ago. I will look into that, Daniel, and I will. I will. I mean, if I do have a take, I I say that opium is like deeply a shamanistic, uh, drug, as you'll come to see in the the episode today. Really deeply embedded in in mysticism and and ancient spiritual practices like all around the world has been such a like deep deep part of humans relationship with like what we perceive as the divine so i guess i i'd really enjoy to to read the book i'll, I'll read it thank you Benny. um isabel said something really cool she she sent in a question asking about an episode on dream interpretation or the sublime in nature so firstly, dream interpretation would be just an amazing episode in itself. Like I, I went through a, a, a young phase in, in sick form where I bought a bunch of his books and read like 10, like maybe 5% of it. Um, so I could get back into that, read a bit more. My uncle was really into demon, dream interpretation, specifically like Jungian psychology. Some of the, the work that I have read is just fascinating about what he's done with his patients. I mean, a lot of people call it quack medicine, quack psychology these days, but I mean, if someone comes to you with, with a problem, with something like plaguing their mind, and you look at, I mean, he recorded the way that they'd, in, they'd go and like basically do surgery on their dreams, look at what their unconscious minds were, were filtering into their conscious selves through, through sleep, through the dreams, and they changed their behaviors in their life according to that and it works they they stop having like they their ailments seem to go away um a lot of his work was about these these people having um repeated nightmares and uh, well Carl Jung well his entire work was trying to interpret what these nightmares were and based on the interpretation again changing your behavior trying to do what your unconscious mind is like begging you to do and it worked a lot for him for his patients it worked um even if it doesn't have like a a real what's the word a real place in in modern medicine and all that modern psychology there's so much to be said for the just this 
the philosophy behind it and and the, it just the the lore of it is incredible all of the, his ideas about archetypes about how like s- certain symbols and dreams are just universal is fascinating just like so so cool so i will do an episode on that thank you um and then the sublime in nature i don't know much about that so to say i read a book um that mentioned about the sublime that well the sublime is like a a, a theme in in like art and literature it's, it's, it's something it's like the perfect like awe-inspiring thing like and the sublime in nature i guess like refers to the ability of of for the, the natural world to have this like deeply like religious war inspiring just amazing like effect emotional effects on people you just like sit there in amazement um this i would i again another cool thing i could look into when, when i think just off the top of my head while i was like planning for the the episode and i, I read this question what came up for me was the this painting that i only really i don't know about art but i know about this painting because it was a painting in minecraft um it, i i think it's called wanderer about wanderer above the sea of fog um i found out i, I googled it just so that i could say a bit louder. it's about it's by casper david friedrich um and you people listening to this you, you probably have seen it in, in some across you must have stumbled across it at some point it's this famous um old painting of a man stood on the edge of a cliff looking out into the mountains and it's the sea of fog with like trees and mountains peeking out of it and when i think of the sublime in nature i think that's what i think of it's about just just the the scale of it and the the man like and all that it represented i mean that i, I watched a video about that that um painting and its place in Caspar David Friedrich's life which I, I'll link in the bio because I do think that the I, I, I urge you to, to go and watch that paint, watch that video but it's just it's just a gorgeous painting I, I please do do google it as I as I talk about this to me it's just all about humans the human like, drive of curiosity the need to conquer like I see the man as like being in awe of this the sea of fog, the sea of fog being like the mystery of the natural world and wanting to conquer it, wanting to explore. Um, again, I, I don't know how much that sum what that sums to, but that that's my take on your your suggestions. Oh, of course, like I'll look into it. So thank you, you guys. Like I I love this. I feel like you guys actually listen to the podcast. I feel like you actually care about um the things that. I talk about I, I I yap about for like half an hour each episode, um, so yeah, thank you. Please like keep sending in questions. Uh, I want to hear more from you guys. Um, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I guess that concludes the Q and A. So, play <laughs> cue the the end of Q and A music. We've all seen poppies before. If you grew up in the UK, around once a year, you'd be basically flooded with poppies all around your remembrance days. We wear these poppies in remembrance of the people who died in World War One. 
they this is because they grew on the Flanders fields where a lot of the main battles in World War One happened. Now, the poppies we wear are also known as the Flanders poppy, obviously, but they are more commonly known as the common poppy. The Latin name is Papaverius. Papava referring to Papaveraci. Papaveraci is the Latin name for the family, the poppy family. Now, in this family, there's another poppy, Papavus somniferum. Now, this more commonly is known as the, opi- the opium poppy or the breadseed poppy. Unsurprisingly, this flower is where we get opium as well as poppy seeds. It's a very unassuming plant, and when you come across one, you wouldn't assume that it's probably one of the most influential plants over the course of human history. And I thought it would be incredible to just do a deep dive on what this plant is and what kind of an effect it has had on our society. So, starting with their biology. They're an annual species, which means that they complete a life cycle each year. The flowers are around six centimeters in diameter. They usually have four petals. They have a hairless and spherical fruit. And when you cut this fruit, it bleeds this milky sap. This white white little drops form. And that milky sap is pure opium. The poppy genome contains around 52,000 genes. And 70% of it is non-coding, is, is basically trash doesn't do anything. Now, the plant is cultivated en masse for three main uses. Firstly, is to produce opium. Secondly, it produces other chemicals called alkaloids, which we use in a lot of our medicines. And the final use is for consumption. Poppy seeds for things like bagels and oil. So, again, a huge part of the poppy economy is from its demand from a dietary perspective. So what is opium? Well, when you dry the sap of the poppy flower, you and you open it up and we look at what chemicals are inside, we find a lot of these chemicals called opiates. Now, these include things that you might have heard of, things like morphine and codeine, but there's a lot of other opiates as well, and we use them in our, in our medicines. Now, the Latin name of the poppy flower, as I said before, is Papaver somniferum. Now, somniferum in Latin means sleep bringing, and it refers to the fact that the chemicals in opium has historically been used as a sedative. Now, when we cultivate poppies, a number of different varieties have been bred over time. The pharmaceutical industry wants to ramp up the chemistry, trying to make it ha- make the sap have greater concentrations of these alkaloids for me- medicinal use. The food in- industry does the opposite. They try and reduce the alkaloid content. But the orna- ornamental industry produces a huge variety of different poppies with different seeds and different fruits and petals and colours. Poppies originally grew in the eastern Mediterranean. But as their historical use spread, so did their range. The plants escaped cultivation a number of times as well. And now we can find them basically all over the world. 
the economic value of the opium poppy globally is in the billions. Now, the seeds alone account for around $200 million of global trade yearly. It's obvious that the species is a huge part of society and, and, and our global economy today. And its contemporary standing is the result of thousands of years of it being intertwined with the evolution of our civilizations. Its history is extensive and rich. So let's look at it. Now, the earliest marks of poppies, or more specifically the opium poppy on our civilization, was with the Minoans. The Minoans were an ancient civilization on the island of Crete, dating back to around 3500 BC, and they lasted until around 1000 BC. It's widely reg regarded as one of the first advanced civilizations in Europe, and they had huge, amazing architecture, they had art, mythology, poetry. We find like marks of this civilization in, in architectural sites all over Crete. The Minoans had an amazing culture and they are like deserving of an episode in themselves. So I'll keep this short. Scholars believe that Minoans praised a mother goddess. Yeah, a mother goddess, much like the ones that we talked about in Mesoamerica in episode three. Much like those cultures, for the Minoans, the mother goddess was a symbol of fertility and creation, and she was shown alongside animals and mythical creatures. We see a lot of references to the use of opium for intoxication in texts found from the Minoans. We know that their cultivation of poppies was extensive, and in archaeological sites, we found ornaments with illustrations of poppies in relation to themes of healing and fertility. It's thought that the hypnosis and the ecstasy and euphoria that's brought on by opium play the central part in spiritual gatherings of the Minoans. We think that they had group worship and orgies dedicated to the praise of this mother goddess. Poppies and gum opium, which is basically taking that dried sap and chewing it, were also known by the ancient Egyptians. We've seen it documented in papyruses, and we also know that it was used by the Persians and the Greeks who called it opos. This word opos is where we take our word opium. The Greeks attributed opium to three different gods. Nyx, the goddess of night, Morpheus, the goddess of dreams, and Thanatos, the goddess of death. It was used for its medicinal capacity. In the Islamic world, it was used as a cure for dysentery, as well as to help people overburdened with grief. The Egyptians prescribed opium for crying children. Now, in these times, opium wasn't smoked. The black resin that comes from when we dry the sap of the poppy was usually dissolved into a wine or, as we said earlier, rolled into a pellet and chewed. We also see it documented as used as a painkiller and an aphrodisiac. Opium's place as a medicine in medieval Europe was a lot more low-key than from the times of the Egyptians and the Greeks. In writings on herbal medicines in England, we see that the juice of poppies was used as a headache and an insomnia cure. In the 16th century, a Swiss chemist or alchemist called Paracelsus, revived the interest in opium. 
He's also known as the father of chemotherapy, interestingly. He wrote about opium extensively, and he wrote, and I quote, I possess a secret remedy which I call laudanum, and which is superior to all other heroic remedies. Paracelsus thought that it was the cure to everything. He spoke of it in depth and urged people to start using this. Later on, opium became a cornerstone of European economy. Throughout America, China and India, it was moving, being traded legally and illegally. The Ming Dynasty prohibited tobacco smoking in China in the 17th century. And this is thought to have nudged tobacco addicts to begin to experiment with opium. This curiosity was sensed by the East India Trading Company, and soon they began investing in the trade of opium to China. Soon, the smoking of opium was commonplace throughout China. The government took note of this rampant spread of opium, and in 1729, they started to prohibit the import and sale of it. This didn't do much, and by 1830, more than 20,000 chests of opium were being imported annually. It's thought that the British demand for Chinese goods was huge. Things like tea, silk, and porcelain were always in demand. But on the other end, the Chinese weren't expressing much demand for British goods. This is thought to be a part of the British push to get the Chinese population hooked on opium so that they could continue trading. In 1839, the Imperial Commissioner Lin Zezu ordered that all of the opium stored by British merchants in warehouses should be destroyed. Later in the year, two drunk British soldiers killed a Chinese villager, and that intensified the political tensions between China and Britain. Before, in that same year, British warships destroyed the Chinese blockade. In 1840, the British government declared war on China, and since the Chinese forces were vastly inferior, the war was ended two years later. This was marked by the Treaty of Nanjing, and it was the first opium war. The Chinese were forced to pay, to pay the British $21 million, as well as giving up Hong Kong, and they were forced to agree for the import of opium. Fifteen years later, a second opium war broke out. A British ship called Arrow was charged with smuggling in Canton. The war ended unsuccessfully for the Chinese again, and in 1860, a huge force of warships of British and French troops captured Beijing, burnt the Emperor's summer palace, and ended the second opium war. This opened China up to Western trade again, and solidified later, later Western power in the East. In the 19th century, further to the West, opium was having a huge influence on European culture as well. It's impossible to consider the history of opium in Europe without mentioning one important man, Thomas de Kinsey. De Kinsey was at the forefront of bringing opium into popular culture. He wrote a book which became very famous and popular called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. He was an artist, but his medium was in these confessions. He wrote elaborative, creative and eloquent accounts of his experiences, which became very, very popular. 
and he is thought to have been sort of a pioneer of European opium use. Opium carried on to inspire a lot of thought in this era. There was many French composers that who used opium to produce symphonies, and later on it's rumoured that Lewis Carroll, under the influence of opium, wrote Alice in Wonderland. So it's obvious that historically, opium has had a huge impact on cultures from both an artistic sense and also in the history of imperialism and the power of the West over the East. And still, it is hugely important in contemporary politics. Now, in April 2022, after the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, they actually banned the cultivation of poppies. An instant reaction to this would be, oh, great, we're cutting down the, the cultivation of poppies. There's going to be less opium in the world. So the drug trade will, will get a bit easier and it's a win. But when you take a closer look at the situation, it's actually quite worrying. Now, before the ban, Afghanistan was actually the world's largest supplier of opium. They produced around 80% of the world's supply. In 2018, it's thought that it contributed to around 11% of the country's GDP. Judging of satellite images, before the ban, there was around 130,000 hectares of land being used for poppy cultivation. And as of early 2023, there's only 740 hectares. The ban has been impressively successful at its aim. But the immediate economic effects of the ban were devastating. The rural farm economy has lost more than a billion dollars per year worth of activity. Families that were already suffering under the weak Afghan economy are now at even greater risk of poverty, hunger and malnutrition. This is on top of the reduction in humanitarian aid, which came as a response to the Taliban taking over. Compared to 2022, humanitarian aid is at a third of its previous level. In response to the ban, farmers were forced to switch to things like wheat, fruits and tree crops. Now, the issue is that for these, you need enough land, an initial investment, as well as time. It takes two or three years before you can start selling these crops all for something that is less profitable than opium. And this just isn't realistic for the majority of Afghans. To deal with the economic hit, families are forced to sell their li livestock, eat less and lower quality food, and send families members out the country and do things like marry off their daughters. This actually isn't the first time that the, the Taliban banned opium production in Afghanistan. The first time was in the year 2000, and it had similar economic effects. Back in 2000, within 18 months, the heroin market of Europe became increasingly less pure, and this meant that drug overdoses increased. It's thought that similar effects will happen today as well. Now, the knee-jerk response to the opium ban will be that it's a good thing, but as history has shown, it's going to have little effect on the global drug problem and it's going to weaken the Afghan economy. It's interesting and it's really important to look at these issues from a deeper perspective.
This little flower has had a huge influence on human culture over the history of civilization, both good and bad. The flower is at the basis of a global opiate addiction crisis, the bakery economy, pharmaceutical innovation, imperial history, and so much more. It's a perfect example of how much there is to the relationship between plants and people, and I found it so, so fascinating. So with this, I wrap up episode four of Touching Grass. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the Instagram, the Twitter, the YouTube. Everything's on the link tree. Leave a rating and feedback. Send any messages. I'll post another Q&A and I'd love to hear from you guys. And I will see you on episode five.